Welcome to another edition of the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. This is Jason Poblet, your host, coming to you from Alexandria, Virginia, an old town right here across the river from Washington, D.C. Today we're joined by Ryan Berg, Dr. Berg, from the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Ryan is an expert in transnational organized crime, narco-trafficking, illicit networks, an issue that we follow very closely here and that I personally have followed for a long time, so I'm eager to talk with Ryan. In fact, we wanted to have him on here for a bit. He's currently over at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, He has served as a research consultant at the World Bank, Fulbright Scholar in Brazil, and a visiting doctoral fellow at the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies in Geneva. He's also done some work in the region, Latin America, including Brazil and Sao Paulo. Uh, one of the uh, subjects that uh, uh, we wanted to bring Ryan on for, but we're going to talk about a few uh, that he's written about were recent events in Nicaragua, uh, something that has Cold War roots and that we're going to dive into a little deeper today. But we're going to go over a few things, including Venezuela, uh, Mexico, Brazil, Cuba, of course, the Troika of Terror, as the former National Security Advisor contextualize it and others back in 2018. So let's jump right into this. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, You've written back in the summer of this year on Nicaragua, and it's uh, an interesting piece that we're going to post a link to this in 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 our podcast summary, and I want folks to read this. It goes into what happened in Nicaragua in 2018 and what's been happening since. A lot of people who are listening to this may have little or no idea what happened down there. What happened is set the scene for us and what happened in Nicaragua leading up to the, 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 the violence and the frankly horrible human rights situation. Uh, but not just in 2018, what do you think led up to that uh, crisis that we're still dealing with today? Well, to start and set the scene, uh, in April of 2018, there was a a pension reform proposal that was uh, put through the National Assembly uh, by Daniel Ortega. Um, It would have uh, cut uh, the Social Security uh, and pension system uh, for elderly Nicaraguans. Uh, There was a a protest uh, against that uh, public policy. Um, The protest was uh, brutally repressed. Um, and a lot of the images were captured on social media. Of course, it doesn't look very good on, on social media in a region where quite a few people have access to mobile phones and use uh, social media pretty assiduously um, when you're beating up you know, uh, and roughing up uh, grandma and grandpa in the streets of Managua. And the country's rest of uh, student population uh, and others descended uh, on the streets uh, of Managua to protest not only the cuts Uh, in solidarity with elderly Nicaraguans, but also the uh, repression um, uh, in April 2018. And those subsequent protests were also uh, quite violently uh, put down. And so um, it was really a tit-for-tat kind of escalation uh, by the Ortega regime uh, to the point where it really escalated out of their control. Uh, A little bit of the background as to why they had to uh, put this Social Security reform Uh, through the National Assembly has to do with the country's growing insolvency. Uh, The fact that a lot of the country's economic growth model 
uh, after Ortega came back uh, into power in 2007 uh, was based on uh, loans that it had been given from big multilaterals, uh, such as the World Bank and the IMF, but also some smaller regionally focused banks, such as CABE, which is the, uh, the Central American uh, Econo Bank for Economic Integration. Um, and when some of those uh, sources of funding uh, started to dry up, and the last bit of funding, which was from the Venezuelan regime, of course, through its program called Petro Caribe, um, in which it was giving billions of dollars a year uh, to, uh, to, to um, like-minded uh, ideological allies within the region. When that money started to dry up, um, Ortega really needed to tighten uh, his uh, uh, fiscal uh, belt in the country, and it caused all sorts of problems uh, with his governing model. And uh, the end result of that was, of course, the April 2018 uprisings in response to proposed pension cuts. How do you... You know, how do you think that the next is this generation, because something that we found fascinating about that period was how the new generation, the 20-something, the early 30-something, some of these kids of the Sandinistas, frankly, uh, were make, made up part of those uh, liberty warriors uh, in, the, in those protests. I mean, it was a, an amalgamation, a, a grouping of different ideological leanings, of course, but I met a lot of these young leaders who came to Washington after that incident, the, the series of incidents, uh, some of it culminated in almost shutting down the country at one point. Uh, these are the young, these are the kids of the revolutionaries who were asking for, and in some cases coming in direct conflict with their, with their parents uh, at, at some level. And then also beyond that, uh, do you think that there's a way forward with this? Because Nicaragua is a relatively young country. Do you think that there's a way forward with this new generation that the Ortega Murillo regime will be able to straddle in a way that they can have elections? Or do you think that the the, the prospects for violence and or shutting down the city, uh, the, the the capital, can happen again? I don't think that there's any. To answer the second question first, I don't think that there's any way. Uh, that this regime can credibly stay in power anymore after the the the, the level of human rights abuses and um, and the level of, of repression that we saw uh, starting uh, in April 2018 and, and what continues today. Uh, there's no way that it can credibly uh, stay in power, and I think the polls in Nicaragua reflect that. I think that um, the Ortegas are in deep trouble uh, if there is, in fact, a free and fair election. Um, their poll numbers have been dropping precipitously, not just because of repression, but also because of the disastrous uh, coronavirus response in the country, um, which is to say there's really been no response at all. The country has uh, allowed the virus to run its course. Um, and so there, there's very little way in my mind that they stay in power and win free and fair elections and maintain credibility. And the, the reason is, as you mentioned, there's a lot of young people um, sons and daughters of committed Sandinistas or former Sandinistas who are now disillusioned with the so-called revolution. Um, completely unfulfilled uh, promises uh, of, of the revolution. I think a lot of young people especially are seeing uh, that what their parents preached to them uh, as, as possible and as true about this revolution is, is completely hollow um, or what had been promised to them uh, never came to in the end, this revolution existed uh, to supplant one dynastic rule for another. 
um, it, it, it was about getting rid of the Samosa regime uh, and bringing in a, a sort of family kleptocracy with, uh, with Daniel and with uh, Rosario at the top. Uh, at least that's what we've seen so far. And, and I don't think there's really any way of going back. And so uh, there are a lot of young people extremely disillusioned with, um, with, with what they had been told from their parents. And, and quite frankly, I think there are a lot of parents uh, who told their young, uh, their children uh, what the Sandinista revolution was all about. And now they too uh, have realized that um, a lot of these promises uh, are, are completely empty. And, and so now they count themselves actually as, as former Sandinistas. You know, the, the interesting also part of this, and we haven't touched on it yet, but we will in a second, was some of it, the U.S. response, for example, in the form of sanctions and that these young, it's almost surreal. I mean, I grew up in, I mean, during the Cold War, Nicaragua was the first country, even though I grew up in South Florida, it was Nicaragua, not Cuba, that I became more involved with as, as, as a young person and meeting, you know, former Contra commanders and leaders and it was uh, a different experience that I came in Nicaragua the way I did to hear some of these uh, young new generations some of these people potentially future leaders in Nicaragua speak the way they were talking about their parents or the revolution and what they wanted for the future I mean some of these people were demanding free markets into corruption uh, it, it's, I think they're still trying to find their way politically but it's it, it is at sometimes surreal to see how these the new generation uh, has taken it upon themselves to um, uh, fill potentially a, a, a space in the in the political um, a theater down there that uh, hasn't I think has needed a vac it has had a vacuum to trying to fill it they didn't know they were doing that but before we talk a little bit about sanctions and and the U.S. response explain to us uh, and to our listeners why Nicaragua is so strategically important even though it's one of the poorest nations in the region. Uh, in Central America and frankly in, in the region, but why is it important from a U.S. strategy uh, standpoint, from a security standpoint, you know, and engagement in Central America, as you know, it's, uh, those of us that follow the region wish that more attention would be paid to it because a lot of the issues we complain about here, illegal immigration, drugs, uh, transnational crime, start in or come from some of these countries. So why is Nicaragua important from a U.S. policy standpoint? Well, you have the whole historical bit, uh, which you mentioned, and I, and I won't go into in, in, in great depth, but you have you know, a U.S. fascination with Nicaragua going all the way back to, uh, back to the Cold War. And I think uh, it doesn't play the same um, uh, type, type of importance that it, that it once did, but it still has that, uh, that, that, that sort of vestige of, of Cold War history there. Uh, it's also strategically uh, in Central America, as you mentioned, we see um, that region is vitally important, not just for migration purposes, but also for security, um, uh, uh, drugs, illegal narcotics, trafficking, but also um, the, the, the track that it's taken in the last uh, decade and a half under Ortega's rule has made it uh, increasingly an important country in Central America as an ideological companion um, of, of the Venezuelan regime and other country in the region that's happy to thumb its nose at the Inter-American Democratic Charter, uh, another country in the region where we see sort of autocratic consolidation in, in a region that is uh, pledged on paper uh, that democracy is the only acceptable form of government uh, uh, for the region. Every country in the region has signed that 
uh, document and, and pledged to uphold it, except for the Cuban regime. Um, and, and it's important for, for those uh, links uh, as well. So, so there's you know, four or five main reasons why I think we should be paying attention uh, uh, to, uh, to, to Nicaragua. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's one of those places that doesn't seem to be able to generate the level of interest that it merits. Well, that's why we're here talking about it with Ryan. And on that, we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to pick up on Nicaragua, talk about sanctions, the NICA Act, and work our way south a little bit to Venezuela and some other interesting uh, uh, policy spots in the region. We'll be right back. So we were talking about Nicaragua and why it matters to U.S. Uh, foreign policy, um, and uh, Ryan was going over a few reasons, and there's so many more we can discuss, and I encourage listeners to read his read his uh, paper on this, and we're going to have it posted on our on on the website for you. Before we leave Nicaragua, though, uh, this is a good transition point because it will connect up with uh, another point in the Triangle of Terror. Well, tell our listeners a little bit about why sanctions have become such a feared tool in Nicaragua, because the NICA Act, which took several years to enact. And it was finally uh, signed into law by President Trump, but Congresswoman Ross Leighton, who initially introduced it, uh, spent spent some time, and we had her on the show uh, a few weeks ago talking about the, the the long road to enactment, but it finally happened. Why do folks in Nicaragua fear uh, the sanctions, and particularly this particular platform for sanctions? And do you think sanctions are effective? Because interestingly. It has a connection. There's an interesting financial connections to Venezuela, which we're going to, I guess, jump over to after we're done with this. Yeah, so the sanctions are a great unilateral tool for the United States to use um, against uh, those who would want to uh, take uh, money earned in, a, in an illicit manner uh, in a country with uh, challenges to rule of law and to park that money uh, in the United States or in other countries where there is uh, a firmer rule of law. Um, sanctions are a great unilateral tool in the sense that, you know, they don't rely really on anybody else, uh, but uh, the folks at OFAC, at the United States Treasury, uh, doing their thorough investigations, finding the evidence and uh, freezing and seizing assets. Um, and they are certainly feared uh, by uh, Nicaraguans and Venezuelans and others uh, who have been their targets because um, suddenly uh, from one day to the next, you are unable to operate. You are uh, really in, in many ways um, persona non grata uh, to many uh, banks that are uh, afraid of falling uh, or running afoul of, of U.S. sanctions and, and greater actions that could be taken against them if they deal with a particular sanctioned individual or, or an entity. Um, and it, it really uh, makes it difficult, not impossible, but, but difficult uh, for, for individuals to operate in that illicit space uh, by, by taking away a lot of their room to maneuver. Of course, they can maneuver around them with shell companies um, and with, uh, with institutions that just openly flout uh, or circumvent U.S. sanctions. But by and large, uh, many uh, institutions, financial institutions, banks, um, and other entities are not likely to, uh, to run afoul of U.S. sanctions because of the massive amount of headaches that it can, uh, it can trigger for them 
uh, if they are found uh, to be to be in violation. So for most individuals, um, a designation, or for most entities, a designation really uh, turns your life um, upside down. And, and in many cases, even the threat uh, of sanctions is enough. Um, the, the credible threat of a sanction or a designation is enough to get uh, individuals um, to, uh, to to change their behavior. Yeah, and, and it's something that in Nicaragua, especially the um, the the banks and the financial institutions that you alluded to in the first um, uh, segment, we were talking about how uh, they, they just police it very closely. And as I've spent years as a sanctions practitioner, and I can tell you that all that you said is correct, and the fear of being sanctioned and losing access to the U.S. marketplace, uh, either through the banking system or a visa to come to the U.S., uh, it's, it's, a, it's highly uh, you know, treasured. They, they, it, there's a high value on it, and I think it's, been an, it's just a tool, of course. It's not a policy, and it has to be backed by a, a policy, and a, this is just a way to remind the bad actors there that access to the U.S. market is a privilege, not a right, and uh, the the connection to Venezuela is, is also not just via sanctions, but via financial relationships, and I think that's why they become very uh, effective in the in this struggle against these these dictators and tyrants in the region. Because Ortega and Maduro uh, have you know they're very close; uh, they're fellow travelers. They are part of this anti-American axis in the region. They both are under sanctions. How do you see the Nicaragua? Venezuela uh, connection, at least up until 2018. And I know it's suffered the last few years because we've made, the U.S. has made a strong move via sanctions and other tools to weaken that relationship, even though I know the Russians are still there in Nicaragua. I know that we definitely know they're over in Venezuela. But how do you see this, 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 this uh, connection with these two powers? And does Ortega rely on Maduro for anything that we should be concerned about? I think he certainly relies on him for uh, for ideological companionship, uh, occasionally for resources, although not uh, not so much anymore. As I mentioned in the previous segment, uh, one of the things that really precipitated uh, the need to uh, reform pensions was the fact that the spigot uh, that was uh, uh, bringing him so much money uh, through the Petro Caribe program, um, uh, starting with his return to power all, all the way through uh, 2017, uh, that, that spigot was really turned off, uh, mostly because of, of Venezuela's uh, economic mismanagement, uh, its precipitous economic decline even before the U.S. Uh, sanctions campaign, uh, and now uh, an oil market that's completely you know, devastated. Uh, Venezuela, most of its uh, money is, is based on the export of oil, somewhere between 95 and 98 percent of the economy. Uh, and so when the world oil market takes the decline that it has, uh, Venezuela has far fewer resources at its disposal to, uh, to spread around to its ideological companions. And so uh, even before the, the sanctions campaign, that relationship wasn't as robust as it is now uh, uh, because uh, quite simply Venezuela didn't have, didn't have the resources. Um, in terms of the overall profile of the, of the relationship, I think the Venezuela-Nicaragua relationship was always one that was based more on ideological companionship, voting together um, in regional blocks, such as the Organization of American States, um, voting against the United States. Uh, it didn't have the same sort of economic 
relationship or, or robust economic relationship that the, the Cuba-Venezuela uh, relationship has, which is to say the, the oil trade uh, back, and, back and forth. Uh, of course, there was oil money, as I mentioned, going to Nicaragua, but it, it, it wasn't quite the economic dependency, let's say, that, that one country had on another. There were a bunch of trade agreements that they signed where um, Nicaraguan businessmen got a preferential market treatment uh, in Venezuela, uh, and I believe vice versa uh, as well. But, uh, but for, I think, Venezuela, especially from their perspective, it was more just about having, um, an, econo having a, an ideological companion uh, in Central America, another country uh, to, to, to form part of their anti-American bloc, and, uh, and another country to vote with them uh, in regional forums like, uh, like the organization of American states, and it never really blossomed into the full uh, kind of de economic dependency that, say, the uh, the Venezuela-Cuba relationship did. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm hoping that as the crises uh, start to resolve at some point, that they, U.S. policymakers and policymakers in those countries, start to dig deeper into some of the financial networks like the Alba, the Nicaragua, the Albanisa, and um, how they're moving money around. It's gonna take some time to track a lot of that down, but there've been some interesting investigations done by uh, entities here in Washington, DC that have started to map the networks, the financial networks that brought in Venezuelan and Nicaraguan money connections, uh, you know, Bancor uh, allegedly depositing, there was like $1.5 billion and, uh, funneled through Nicaraguan institutions. So it'll be interesting to see when all of this resolves itself, how it all was connected and that ideological, you know, these fellow travelers in Latin America, the, the alternative, the, the ALBA alternative for the Americas and anti, frankly anti-Americanist uh, axis movements in the region uh, where we're, we're, we're making these headway and it came, come in, come Trump and a little bit during the Obama administration, they started to disrupt these networks, but it really has taken a, a, a bite out of their, their money flow. And I think Nicaragua was paying a high price for it. And in Venezuela, no doubt. In Venezuela, it was, when it comes to transnational crime, what do you see as the biggest, let's say, putting the, the politics of Venezuela aside for a minute, what do you see as the most pressing security issue with Venezuela in the Andean region and why it's so important to get this right. What's happening there now? Well, it's a, it's, it's, it has a strategic position uh, on the Caribbean. It's a, it's a massive destabilizing factor, not just in terms of the levels of human migration it's sending around the region, but also some of the illicit networks, as you alluded to. So just for context, the Venezuelan Nicaraguan illicit uh, financial flows. Uh, the best information that I've seen on that is somewhere between four uh, and six billion dollars total uh, through uh, the linked um, national oil companies. A lot of that money was pegged to national development projects in Nicaragua, stuff that never came to fruition, places that are still just empty fields now. Um, and a lot of that money ended up, of course, uh, being funneled into uh, accounts that uh, kept the, uh, the Sandinista party uh, afloat. So I, I think much of it just kind of became uh, party slush funds, uh, ways to keep certain people in power and to, uh, and to of course, uh, buy, you know, fancy houses and, and, and other things. Um, but Venezuela is also uh, a, a security threat in terms of uh, the presence of uh, 
a deep illicit market, uh, illicit market for drugs, uh, for, for, uh, for gold, uh, for a number of other uh, precious minerals. Um, I've written before about how it's a, it's a security threat in terms of the weapons that it possesses, uh, not, just, um, not just small arms, but also uh, pretty significant weaponry uh, that it's built up with arms transfers from Russia over the last decade or so, I think somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of about 10 billion uh, in arms transfers. Um, so anything from uh, IGLA S uh, man pads, uh, mm. shoulder fired uh, 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 rockets that could essentially down um, civilian airliners uh, with, if they were in proper distance, all the way to uh, anti-aircraft uh, missiles that, it, that the Maduro regime likes to show off anytime it feels like it's in, uh, in, a, in a threatening security posture. And then recently uh, we've seen Maduro regime starting to talk about uh, uh, efforts to acquire short-range ballistic missiles from the Iranians. That's right. uh, and mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, that's a, that's a really topical, uh, perfect example of why uh, this regime in, in both its uh, illicit and quite overt action uh, represents a, a, a security threat uh, to, to, uh, to the region. Uh, the levels of proliferation that are emanating from, uh, from Venezuela in terms of criminality, uh, weapons, drugs, illicit gold, minerals, uh, and maybe even uh, uh, serious uh, heavy weapons now um, uh, is really unfathomable. Yeah, it's something that, frankly, we didn't see a lot of this happening during the Cold War with the exception of the things we were seeing in Cuba and Nicaragua. This is, uh, frankly, what's been happening the last six months has been eye-opening. In fact, I want to go back a minute. We're going to talk more about the weapons in a minute, but a little bit more about sanctions in Venezuela because you wrote something recently that caught my attention that I wanted to ask you about. You wrote about the, um, the the whole policy of sanctions and where we were right now. And you said this, that engaging in an illicit operations that have allowed Venezuela, Maduro, to offset the revenue that it has lost from the crude oil exports and the sanctions, and it has been able to evade successfully through gold mining and trade-based money laundering. There's two, two, two points. One, is that sustainable? And second, how have you know nations like state-sponsored terror Iran been able to open pharmacies and supermarkets? Uh, and is this part in in Venezuela? And these are not just uh, you know rinky-dink, tiny operations. These are large Iranian-owned businesses that we had not seen this sort of Iranian penetration of the Americas uh, ever. Uh, how how have they done this, and wh- where do you see this going if there's not a political change? Because if they keep establishing businesses this way, and are they offsetting sanctions just enough to break from the pressure of declining crude oil, Maduro can maybe stay there unless something else happens indefinitely if he wanted to. Yeah, I see us at a pretty critical uh, moment in time. I think the piece you're referring to is called Checkmating Chavismo. It was in the Georgetown uh, Security Studies Review uh, Journal. And um, uh, look, I, I think the sanctions have done uh, have done a great job at curtailing the amount of uh, revenue that the regime can rely on uh, in its illicit activities. But it, it really is a game of whack-a-mole. It's, it's ended up of being able to develop a number of illicit markets, uh, such as the illegal gold and illegal uh, minerals trade, uh, to help offset uh, some of those uh, losses. Of course, 
those uh, gains are not trickling down to the Venezuelan people. They're used for security, uh, the, the security apparatus and for uh, the regime's stability itself. Uh, these uh, types of illicit trades are having immense uh, human costs. Uh, look at some of the reports that Human Rights Watch has done um, about the, the so-called Arco, Arco Minero, uh, the, the, the mining arc uh, in, in southern uh, Venezuela, where some of these illegal wildcat uh, gold mines operate. You'll find uh, a resurgence in, um, in, in communicable diseases like diphtheria and measles and malaria. Uh, you'll find uh, marauding gangs, uh, even even Hezbollah and, and the, the um, National Liberation Army, the FARC, a number right. of Colombian transnational organized crime groups uh, uh, constructing an illicit social order in these in these parts of the country. Um, it, you'll find terrible uh, human rights abuses. Uh, and so the human costs to, to, to average Venezuelans of this regime uh, uh, keeping its its stability through these illicit uh, practices in the, these illicit markets uh, has been really uh, tremendous. Um, and, and that is, I think, uh, completely unsustainable um, uh, uh, for, for the regime. At, at some point, uh, you know, not even desperation uh, is going to uh, help uh, continue to fill these, uh, these, these illegal wildcat mines with workers, because uh, I think the word is out now uh, how desperate the situation is uh, in, in, in this part of the world. And it's gonna be very difficult, in my opinion, to continue uh, to, to bring the type of human capital and, and labor to that region uh, that the Maduro regime needs to, uh, to continue mining at the, at the same level that, it, that it's been mining at so far. Um, that said, you know, it's really difficult. Another thing I wrote about in this piece is just how difficult it is uh, to be able to use sanctions uh, to go after an illicit network like gold, uh, right. because it's so easily, uh, it's a substance that so easily uh, evades sanctions because uh, it really doesn't have any, uh, any stamp, let's say, uh, indelible stamp that would, that would definitely tell us, oh, this is Venezuelan gold, as opposed to gold from Guyana or from Brazil or from Colombia or from any other places uh, in the region where, um, uh, where gold, uh, in theory, it, it's possible to, to mine gold. And so uh, the regime is evading uh, uh, sanctions uh, s simply by centering on a product that is easily melted down, uh, its origins obscured, uh, and then having it uh, exported with, uh, with unscrupulous actors who are happy to falsify certificates about where, in fact, it was, it was mined. Um, when it comes to the Iranian presence, uh, in Venezuela, look, look uh, Iran has maintained uh, a, a very significant Hezbollah network within uh, South America more generally, uh, but within Venezuela specifically uh, for many years now. And um, uh, they're involved in all sorts of trades, uh, including the illegal gold trade, uh, but also, as you alluded to, uh, setting up supermarkets and pharmacies. And, and, and they've, they've really found a permissive uh, economic uh, environment um, uh, directed uh, allegedly by uh, uh, certain individuals in, in the Venezuelan regime um, of Middle Eastern origin who are very high up, uh, such as uh, Tarek al-Assami, the former vice president of the country, now minister of the interior, uh, and others, uh, giving falsified documents uh, out of Middle Eastern embassies, uh, giving uh, even Venezuelan citizenship. 
uh, in some right. cases yeah. uh, to, to, to individuals out of embassies uh, in, in Syria and in Lebanon and other places uh, to come to uh, Venezuela and to, uh, to, to set up shop. And so that, that relationship has really uh, existed for, uh, for a long time. And, and now uh, with the open talk of, of, of uh, buying short range ballistic missiles, and the, the pharmacies and the supermarkets, it's really coming uh, out into the open for us to examine. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk more about the missiles, uh, the Russians again, they keep popping up in this podcast, I wonder why. And uh, a document, and I, I, I know that my, my team is going to, their eyes are going to glaze over when they hear that I want to talk about the Rio Treaty, but I think it's important that we get into that briefly because I think it's an interesting document, it's an interesting roadmap that connects a few things here that provides us a platform to do certain things in the Americas that I think we should have done a while ago. So when we come back, we'll talk with Ryan from AEI about uh, the Rio Treaty, uh, Russians and missiles in Venezuela and work our way toward Cuba because there's an interesting connection to both Nicaragua and Venezuela and Cuba, that we're going to close that triangle there and then talk a little bit about Mexico and Brazil. We'll be right back. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. And we're back with Ryan Berg from the American Enterprise Institute. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I wish we could stop and unpack a lot more uh, what Ryan's talking about, but we're a little limited with time. So we're just going to keep plugging away and we're probably going to have Ryan back if he wants to keep talking a little more about some of these issues, because I think they're extremely important and his outlook, uh, and his, uh, his, his focus helps uh, all of us kind of get a better understanding of what's at stake um, right here in our hemisphere. Uh, Ryan, you, you've written about this a bit, but I, I'd like you to explain it to our, our listeners uh, about the Rio Treaty, maybe get into about why, what, what, what it is and why maybe we should be using some of the tools that are contained in it, because as, as, as you've outlined about sanctions, and uh, it's it's spot on uh, sanctions. And I, I say this a lot to, have said it to my clients and I have said it to colleagues when we talk about policy issues. Sanctions are a tool, uh, they're not a policy. Although they're the favorite tool of many policymakers because they, they tend to make for attention grabbing headlines. Uh, they, they need to be used carefully uh, in coordination where they focus on an end goal. So you, you can't sanction your way to victory. Uh, that's not the way these tools are designed to be used. There are other things, especially here in the Western Hemisphere, we have the oldest international uh, system, in, or the OIS existed before the UN by a few years. Um, and there's some 
powerful instruments that I think should be dusted off, including the real treaty and some parts of it, dealing maybe because of the missile issue that you've talked about, uh, and some of the Cuban adventurism that the Russians are facilitating. So what do you think about having America or, or and our partners, for example, invoking and making referrals under Article 5 of the Rio Treaty, informing the Security Council of the UN about certain things that are happening here in the hemisphere that are, that are destabilizing inter-American peace and security? Because I think you'd agree at a minimum that what's happening in Venezuela is creating instability, not only in the Andean region, but potentially further out. Yeah, I think that the Rio Treaty offers us a number of, of, of different tools which we should uh, explore. And I really think, you know, in, in many ways, the United States has just started to, to, to touch uh, when we invoked it uh, at the end of last year. So just a bit of background for our listeners. The, the Rio Treaty is the shorthand for uh, the Inter-American Treaty of Reciprocal Assistance, um, which was signed in 1947, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it has a number of tools uh, for its uh, signatories. Um, basically, it, it offers uh, the ability for uh, the, the parties to, uh, to come together and form um, more or less a united a hemispheric uh, defense policy. Uh, the united, when the United States triggered it, for example, last year, um, it uh, used it um, not necessarily uh, to, uh, to, to try to get uh, countries uh, in the hemisphere to uh, to use force against Venezuela. I remember around the time of the, the Rio Treaty being triggered, there were a lot of countries that were a bit skittish because there was talk of, of a common sort of use of force policy that never came to fruition. It was mostly about uh, a coordinated uh, uh, sanctions uh, policy, um, a coordinated policy of, of denying visas and denying access or entry uh, to certain individuals of Venezuelan origin. Uh, so that they would have fewer, uh, uh, they would have less space to work um, in in the southern hemisphere, um, and that that's really how the how the U.S. has used uh, the the Rio Treaty thus far um, since invoking it last year. But I think that there's a lot more on common sanctions policy that it could do. Uh, there's a lot more um, in, in terms of identifying problematic. Individuals, and there's a lot more in terms of uh, uh, specific findings, referrals, as you mentioned, uh, that it could do uh, in, in referring um, uh, in referring certain uh, uh, findings uh, to, for example, the UN Security Council or to uh, to the OAS uh, for for consideration. And so, in many ways, this treaty offers us tools. There, there's real teeth to the, to the treaty, um, but we haven't gotten around to, to to leveraging it, in my opinion, to the fullest extent. Yeah, no, and you know the Trump administration has made a lot of headway in that space. It's it's um, you know this Venezuela issue has manifested itself, and we haven't even started to talk about the the crisis in Venezuela. We don't have time right now to do that, but uh, there's a lot there, and uh, hopefully uh, they'll they'll make a lot more use of it because it it can serve as a powerful tool to advance uh, U.S. national interest and in a united way, in a focused way. And I think it can work. I, I also think that the OAS system needs some reforming, but that's the subject for another show. Uh, tell us a little bit about Cuba. We, we've worked our way through Nicaragua, a little bit of Venezuela. How does Cuba factor into all of this? 
Yeah, so Cuba is uh, really, uh, in some ways, the head of the snake um, in terms of uh, particularly the, the security assistance that it provides to both uh, the Ortega regime in Nicaragua and also the Maduro regime in Venezuela. Um, it is uh, making a very crude trade, uh, security assistance for, uh, for economic assistance because the, the island's uh, economic model uh, is of course bankrupt. Uh, they, they, have no, uh, they have no growth under their highly centralized planned economy. Uh, and so they're very much reliant on uh, Venezuelan petrodollars. Uh, they're very much reliant on the ideological companionship uh, that uh, countries like Nicaragua can provide it uh, in a region and in a world where they're otherwise pretty isolated. Um, and the, the very crude swap that they make is a, is a brutal uh, expertise in internal security uh, for, for this economic assistance. And so it, it's been noted many times before that, uh, that in Venezuela, especially, uh, Maduro's entire inner circle uh, is, is Cuban. Uh, he doesn't have very many, if any at all, uh, Venezuelan bodyguards. Um, and uh, one particularly notable institution is, is uh, it goes by the acronym DGIM, it's the Directorate uh, General of, of uh, Mil Military Intelligence. Is basically an institution that was built on top of the Venezuelan military in 2007, I believe, um, after there were some uh, internal stability issues. Uh, Fidel helped, uh, at the time, Hugo Chavez, President Hugo Chavez, uh, build the DGIM, which uh, is, is a, an institution that uh, spies on, on the Venezuelan mil military and, and is very good at detecting any sort of whiff of def right. defections within the ranks. Um, and in, in Nicaragua as well, I, I think you didn't have the same uh, level of, of Cuban presence, at least prior to April 2018, uh, as you did in, in Venezuela. But uh, there was a notable Cuban presence that uh, there was an uptick in Cuban presence after the April 2018 um, uh, uprisings uh, to the point where the, the, I don't know why they released this data, but the Nicaraguan Tourism Agency uh, made note of the fact that uh, Cuban arrivals uh, on uh, Nicaraguan soil had increased uh, like 900% uh, in, in uh, 2018 and, and 2019. So you went from, you know, a few hundred visitors a year to many thousands. And of course, that was facilitated by a flight uh, that uh, had a very telling itinerary, Havana, Managua, Caracas. Uh, so, you know, there's the triangle uh, com completed right there. And in the OAS uh, Commission's report on, on Nicaragua, uh, you have former political prisoners uh, attesting to the fact that they had been tortured in Daniel Ortega's prisons by people with distinct Cuban accents. So uh, it's, no, it's no surprise that, that that history that we see in Venezuela is, is playing itself out uh, again uh, in Nicaragua, which is to say, you know, the Cubans are really expert in uh, internal security um, and, and putting down uh, any, uh, any internal rebellions. And that, that is really their, uh, their, their gift to these two regimes is the internal security expertise that they bring to both Ortega and, uh, and Maduro. It, and it's all interconnected and it goes now to the next subject. We want to just, we're not going to talk too much about Cuba today, but the transnational crime, I want to transition into that a little bit and how it hits home in so many ways. And we're going to talk 
a little bit now about Mexico and also Brazil. Let's just start with Mexico for a minute. Um, about four hours from, four and a half hours from where we're at, where we're at south of us in Axton, Virginia. It's a town now uh, down near the border uh, with North Carolina. Uh, there's been, it's one of the hubs, or used to be one of the hubs, it's still a high, high hub of uh, drug smuggling uh, of all places from Mexico. And uh, the U.S. government was able to crack down and brought to, brought to justice of, of several facilitators or members of the Cartel de Jalisco, uh, Nueva Generación, or CJNG, uh, who has been able to grow their footprint here in, in the U.S., uh, uh, engaging in all sorts of illegal activity and they use have used that part of Virginia and they'll go up on the western portion of I-81 and use it as a transshipment point to get illegal drugs, cocaine and other products outside of the U.S. and around the world into Canada. How does this, you know, we know that the Nicaraguans and the Venezuelans and the Cubans frankly uh, in, engage or elements of it engage in illegal drug trafficking or money laundering. The Mexicans, though, have a big problem also with transnational crime, and they are the head of many problematic issues. I mean, if Cuba's the ideological head, which they are, they are the head of that snake for all of these fellow travelers in Caracas, Venezuela, and other countries. Uh, without getting into the politics of AMLO right now, how does the Mexico transnational issue, crime issue, threaten U.S. security interests, not just at the border, but in places all the way up here in, in, in Virginia. Yeah, these are transnational organized crime groups that operate seamlessly across borders. Uh, they have operatives uh, in Mexico and throughout the United States. The supply chain is incredibly developed. Uh, I would say that the illicit network supply chain for some Mexican cartels in the United States is almost as developed as the supply chain for uh, licit products that are made uh, sort of under the um, auspices of, of the USMCA agreement. These are really wow. uh, sophisticated networks uh, where they, um, you know, they, it, it really is a science in the same way that a supply chain to make a product would be uh, to get it to certain uh, people in certain cities. There are distribution networks uh, within those cities. Uh, there are plenty of uh, time tested or proven uh, mechanisms or, or ways to get it across the border. Uh, a lot of these drugs come across the border uh, through um, uh, through uh, entry points on the road, actually. Uh, we, we see a lot of um, uh, noise being made about sort of narco tunnels and all sorts of other uh, illicit ways that, that things are brought in. Uh, people like El Chapo were famous for uh, hiding cocaine in uh, tamale jars. Uh, so a lot of these uh, drug traffickers are very uh, sophisticated when it comes to uh, getting their products across the border um, in otherwise licit cargo, right? Um, uh, and, and so using uh, existing supply chains uh, where illicit products can run or move right alongside licit products. Um, and that, you know, that's a huge problem as we, as we, try to implement the USMCA and we try to bring supply chains in the wake of, of the coronavirus pandemic from Asia and, and nearshore them uh, back into uh, Central and South America so that we have a sort of hemispheric 
uh, uh, economic uh, development policy and, and common supply chain. This is a huge problem when, when traffickers are already adept uh, at using a country like Mexico to move their products alongside um, our, our licit uh, uh, supply chains. Mm. Some of these groups, in fact, are so strong uh, that, that they control wide swaths of territory uh, in Mexico. Um, this was the case uh, before AMLO, and it's certainly the case uh, after uh, AMLO uh, came, uh, came into the presidency. Um, you mentioned uh, CJNG. There's also Sinaloa. Uh, there's the Santa Rosa de Lima cartel, there's the, there's the Gulf, there's the Zetas. There are a number of groups that are extremely powerful, extremely violent, uh, and, and, and they, they control uh, territory where, where literally the, the Mexican state, uh, the, the, the institutions in the Mexican state simply aren't present. Right. Yeah, and that's the something that, kinda... I mean, it, it's kind of uh, shocking that the closest nation to the U.S., largest trade partner, uh, we know we know we know a lot of the issues, of course, of why this has happened, but they have a very difficult road ahead to ensure that the Mexican people as a country uh, uh, remain united against this horrible foe because you know the, the peculiarities of their history and how sometimes working with the u s is frowned upon, and there's all sorts of complicated complex uh, relationships that we have with them just to make sure that we can help them because they do need our help. Uh, and also it's a, it's a part, it's an issue that we have to work on together because it impacts us right over the border in ways that you just described. I mean, a hundred plus tons a year of high pure meth and cocaine just by one cartel makes it all the way up to Virginia and North up to New York and off to the rest of the world. So it, it's not just an issue for Mexico, it's an issue for the U S and we have to work together at it because Americans, by the way, have been killed uh, reportedly because of this sort of violence. So it's not just a drug issue. It's a safety issue for American citizens. Yeah, that's, that's entirely right. Uh, there, there have been a couple of high profile uh, killings of Americans uh, in, in Mexico. Um, and, uh, and of course, that's not to mention uh, the uh, about 72,000 uh, people that died uh, in uh, 2018, I think, uh, from uh, from opioid uh, use. Uh, that's uh, not to mention uh, the other types of illicit substances that these cartels are capable of, of moving over the border. And in return, they have excellent operations inside the United States, not just yeah. to, not just to distribute uh, the products that they bring over the border, but to take back with them uh, certain uh, weapons, uh, in, in particularly in border states. Uh, where, where they can get weapons uh, uh, easily and bring them over the border uh, to, to wreak terror upon uh, Mexican citizens as well, to hold territory, to contest territory, uh, and to really challenge the Mexican government in many ways. Uh, there was a video that I would commend our, um, our listeners to, to go and see if they want a, a, an image or a, a, a quick a peek into just how powerful the CJNG cartel is. Uh, there was a, a video a, a couple weeks ago of some extremely powerful uh, weaponry, including um, about 50 to 100 men in, in full military fatigues. Uh, they had uh, Toyota 4Runners and other armed uh, and other, uh, sorry, bulletproof uh, vehicles behind them. And, and they were taunting the Mexican president, right. uh, uh, basically yeah. saying that, you know, we're, we're untouchable uh, and, and we basically uh, constitute our own little parastate uh, w within Mexico and, and, uh, and, and the Mexican authorities are, are literally too scared 
uh, to enter the territory that we control because um, we simply have them outgunned. And we're going to talk some more about that on the way back. Uh, I have to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to wrap up our last segment. We're going to wrap up with Mexico, talk a little bit about Brazil, and then close in as to why should American taxpayers uh, pay attention to some of the issues. I think it's pretty evident, and I think most people would, would see that there are a lot of things happening in, in the hemisphere, but I'm going to get Ryan's point of view about why he thinks we need to pay a lot more attention to this region. Uh, we'll be right back. And we're back with Ryan Berg from the American Enterprise Institute. We, before we took that break, we were talking about Mexico and the drug cartels and the transnational crime issues as they impact America. And as we wrap that up, Ryan, uh, how do you see the Mexican state uh, with, a, with a president that's more aligned with the likes of Maduro, uh, Raul Castro, or Diaz-Canel in Cuba, although the Communist Party pretty much still runs that island, so Raul still runs the island, and, and people like Ortega. Do you see the AMLO influence who's ideologically connected to those people uh, having any sway in how these issues get resolved in, in Mexico, or do you see him straddling and trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with my more important neighbor and trade partner, the U.S., and keep working to deal with these problems that are transnational, that cross our border, that hurt Americans? Well, I think Mexico under President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, AMLO has uh, tried to have its cake and eat it too, and it's failed. Uh, mm -hmm. I see Mexico uh, at this point in time uh, as less influential on the world scene than it has been under previous presidents. Uh, I don't see any sort of uh, influence accruing to uh, to Mexico for uh, its alignment uh, with uh, with Maduro. For in instance, uh, inviting him to uh, the inauguration uh, in Mexico City, giving him a platform and a recognition that was really just not warranted. Uh, there was nothing really to be gained uh, from that action, and uh, and in fact, it ended up causing uh, him uh, quite a bit of headaches as as uh, opposition Mexican lawmakers. Uh, shouted down, shouted him down, uh, uh, dictador, dictador. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't see any sort of uh, uh, influence on the international stage uh, accruing to, uh, to, to to Mexico by virtue of it trying to straddle uh, some of the more autocratic regimes uh, in Latin America and the uh, the democratic uh, regimes. I think Mexico is much more influential uh, within uh, uh, within the um, the category of, of countries that are, you know, running legitimate free and fair uh, elections. That said, I think Lopez Obrador has been a very pragmatic when it comes to the relationship with the United States. Uh, we all know he's not a fan uh, of free trade. Nevertheless, he pushed for the USMCA uh, agreement. I think that there were some things that were uh, given to the Mexicans in that agreement with which uh, Lopez Obrador could be very happy. Uh, could even say on the domestic level uh, were, were wins for him. Uh, and so I think uh, he's done pretty much everything that the Trump administration has asked of him, including on, on migration. I mean, the, the brand new uh, Guardia Nacional, the, the National Guard uh, that he uh, wanted to create as one of his signature issues on, on security, 
uh, ended up becoming uh, uh, more or less uh, an immigration police uh, on, on the southern border with, uh, with yeah. Central American states, uh, rather than uh, doing what he had originally thought that they were going to do, which is drug interdiction uh, and, and some pretty high-level operations to, uh, to, to take out uh, cartel leadership. Um, they, they've more or less been uh, stationed at, uh, at, at uh, Mexico's borders, at the southern border and at the uh, northern border. And again, that was at the request uh, of the Trump administration. So two uh, key examples, I think, of where he's been very, very practical uh, in dealing with the United States. He was super deferential to President Trump when he came for the bilateral visit, even going so far as to say that the United States uh, is, a, is a key ally and a, and a sound partner and, and thanking President Trump for, uh, for treating Mexico uh, uh, as, as an equal partner uh, in, this, uh, in this relationship. So uh, on, on the U.S.-Mexico relationship, he's been very, very pragmatic uh, because I think he knows uh, that this is the sort of cornerstone of, of, of Mexican foreign policy. And in the areas where uh, he's, been very, uh, he's been very unorthodox, and is, is in trying to straddle some of these uh, regimes that are very autocratic uh, and in some cases uh, pure dictatorships. And in my opinion, it hasn't really accrued any, any sort of international prestige or effectiveness uh, for Mexican foreign policy. I, yeah, yeah you'd, you'd be right about that. And, and I think that the, the market, you know, markets trumping policy or politics, I mean, with the, with the rhetoric that AMLO uses um uh, i think he he values his relationship a lot more with the u.s uh, than maybe he does with these uh fading powers such as venezuela and cuba which are the past really and i think folks maybe i'm a little optimistic about the future about those two countries but i think that the, there's a new a new generation of leaders wanting to take control and change those countries into better places and i think the u.s keeps having their back i think you're going to see good things happen in due time in those places. Again, there are many challenges ahead and, and I think Mexico could be a partner for some of that, but we'll, you know, we'll see. There's a lot still that can go wrong in Mexico, but there's a lot going right. And I think the people of Mexico would like to see a, a strong, prosperous, prosperous relationship with the U.S. Uh, and, and I think we're going to see that in, in due time. That, before we run out of time, I wanted to chat a bit about Brazil and what's happening over there with uh, Bolsonaro and just your general views on on how they factor into this little puzzle that we've kind of carved out, and because uh, frankly, no discussion about the region would be complete without having some discussion about Brazil. And there, they has this president has a very good relationship with President Trump. Uh, I think they, there's a lot. There was an expectation that certain things would happen. I think the Corona pandemic has maybe put a few of the, those potential projects on hold, but it's still a, a growing market. Uh, a, a great powerhouse in South America. Where do you see? And they, but they also have a lot of problems with transnational crime. In fact, this week uh, there's um, uh, stories that are surfacing about uh, Brazilians wanting to politicians wanting to disband the group of anti-corruption prosecutors, uh, which uh, may or may not have some connection to the current administration. But we don't have time to go into all of it. But big picture, though, where, where do you see Brazil? in the next few years and how important is the Bolsonaro administration to rooting out corruption uh, from the left, for example, things that happened that were never held to account. That connects to all these other regions too, by the way, a lot of the money laundering that was taking place with Dilma 
uh, Rousseff and with Lula had connections to Venezuela, had connections to Cuba and Nicaragua. Yeah, so I see uh, Brazil in the next couple of years uh, climbing, climbing out of a pretty significant uh, economic recession, uh, as with much of the of the rest of the of the region. Um, I hope uh, that I see a Brazil that uh, is continuing to improve uh, some of its statistics on uh, on, on violence and homicides, uh, which is of course uh, the best proxy, in my opinion, for transnational organized crime and its activities. Um, uh, and I, I hope to see uh, a Brazil that is uh, making strides uh, in, in anti-corruption, a Brazil that hasn't voted uh, to end the, as you alluded to, the, uh, the Lava Jato uh, investigation, which is a, a wide-ranging uh, six years and ongoing uh, inve investigation um, that has uh, prosecuted a number of very significant individuals, put, a, put even a greater number of individuals uh, uh, behind bars, uh, all the way up to a, a former president, uh, President Lula da Silva. Um, and so it's, it's had this tremendous uh, impact on Brazilian politics, uh, making anti-corruption efforts you know, the most important uh, thing, domestic uh, thing in, in, the, in the country. And I, I think uh, if some of the rumors, as you alluded to, are, are true uh, about uh, Jair Bolsonaro and his family, um, and some of the activities in which they might be involved um, and, and that they might in fact be uh, significant drivers of the push to end the anti-corruption uh, movement in Brazil. This could be a significant uh, hit to his prestige and his reputation uh, as somebody who is, who is an outsider, uh, not one of, of, the, of the Brazilian uh, system, somebody who is gonna take a, a wrecking ball uh, to the establishment uh, and shake things up in, in a good way uh, if he uh, if if he is behind this uh, push, or if uh, either of his sons, who are both under investigation uh, for different things, uh, ends up being convicted, um, there there could be a significant price to pay in terms of his image um, and and how he's seen, uh, or in this case, wouldn't be seen anymore uh, as an anti-corruption uh, uh, fighter uh, in Brazil. And and I worry long term uh, about. Uh, what kind of reaction that might have um, in, in Brazilian domestic politics, uh, what, what kinds of candidates could come in the wake of a Bolsonaro presidency right. that wasn't particularly successful uh, in rooting out corruption. Uh, be, because uh, for many of us, you know, he, he represented a, a, a chance, a, a, a way forward to, uh, to, to, to push uh, any corruption efforts. And, uh, and if those fail, uh, it could have a significant impact on, on Brazilian domestic politics uh, because, um, you know, the establishment in that country has already been uh, extremely devastated by these repeated investigations. Uh, you could have uh, even, uh, you, you could have you know, fringe candidates emerging uh, in Brazil, a, a significant destabilization of domestic politics in the largest country in Central, in South America, um, if uh, this, this anti-corruption push uh, uh, doesn't continue. So, Massive uh, domestic and and, uh, and regional uh, impact uh, Brazil has on on Latin America's politics, and uh, it's all right now, in my opinion, about any corruption efforts on a domestic level. Yeah, and this is a great place to to wrap up with that that subject because it's one that near and dear to my heart, and every listener should know that you as taxpayers have been involved in helping a lot of our partners in the region and all the countries that we talked about, Mexico, 
to a lesser extent, Nicaragua, although the DEA uh, is involved in, in, in all of these all these case, all these all these countries and Nicaragua too. But uh, uh, the U.S. invests a lot of taxpayer time, money, effort, goodwill to help our partners in the region combat corruption. And there's a lot of ways that we do that. And uh, a lot of these investigations that, for example, you see announced at DOJ when they've spent months, sometimes years, putting together cases, they're not easy to do. And, and the cooperation that we have with partners in the region, in Mexico and all these countries in Brazil, to bring bad people to justice one way or another, either because you can't or won't or are unable to do it in, your, in, in some of these countries, there's transnational crimes that we can prosecute here in U.S. courts and, and sanctions, of course, that just don't happen overnight. Those take a lot of time. Targeting people and organizations is not something that is done lightly. And the work that OFAC does, these investigations take a lot of time. So when you have these shifts in the region or, 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 or political machinations that can disrupt uh, uh, it can disrupt a lot of the hard work being done over here and, 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 and hurt the cause of justice. And um, why should then, and, and there's a lot more that we do in the region that we haven't talked about, Ryan, but why should Americans listening to this, or anyone listening to this, who maybe follows issues other than the Western Hemisphere, why are these important issues? I think we've talked about a lot of topics, why it should be, but why do you think, why is it important for the U.S. to remain engaged in the region and why should Americans focus a little more on what's happening here versus maybe some other region of the world? Yeah, it's one of the most uh, strange, it's one of the strangest things to me as, as someone who studies Latin America and the Western Hemisphere, why the United States uh, seems uh, reluctant to engage further with its neighbors. Uh, uh, for, for me, it's really incomprehensible why the United States wouldn't be engaging more and why, why Americans wouldn't care uh, more because there's there's just so much at stake. This is a this is a shared hemisphere that we have. We have so many historical links, linguistic links, immigration ties, economic ties, security ties uh, with with our neighbors in, in the shared hemisphere. That I think it definitely behooves us to pay attention and to have a vision, a shared vision uh, for what our neighborhood uh, should be like. We have it written uh, in documents to which I've alluded earlier in in conversation. The Inter American democratic charter. Think of how rare it would be uh, uh, in a world where we see a growing number of autocratic regimes uh, to have a region that is largely free or entirely free of dictators. And this would be an incredible vision uh, uh, for, for a shared neighborhood that I think the U.S. Uh, is committed to working towards and, and American uh, taxpayers uh, should, should commit to working towards. On a practical level, all of these uh, security and transnational organized crime threats we've talked about have a significant rule of law component to them. Uh, so it doesn't behoove the United States to allow uh, money laundering and trafficking uh, in, in, in its country, uh, in its borders rather. Uh, there is rule of law uh, uh, consequences for these countries uh, as well. And security and development are really uh, opposite sides of the same coin. So we've talked about security a lot in this conversation. We've talked less about development but obviously countries of the region can't have dynamic, prosperous, entrepreneurial, uh, free market economies uh, if they don't have the basic you know, modicum of security uh, that is warranted uh, to engage in a complex uh, economic exchange and transaction uh, with, with any sort of guarantee 
uh, for, for their money. Uh, and the last reason that I would give uh, for why Americans uh, should be uh, very concerned about uh, the Western Hemisphere is that we're about to enter an age of great power competition. Uh, we are competing against a number of rising powers uh, who would like to knock the United States off of the, uh, uh, the, the, the spot, the, the number one international spot where we're able to have influence and shape international norms and institutions. Um, and it, it behooves uh, America and, and American taxpayers uh, to pay attention to the, re the region that's most proximate to us. Uh, because I think if we, if we cede this region uh, to, to other powers who are competing with us for global influence, uh, we will not have the type of power we would like to have in other regions as well. We gather our strength from this shared neighborhood that I mentioned before. And if we have a shared neighborhood, a Western hemisphere that's completely in disarray, uh, we are not ready for great power competition with China or Russia or Iran or any other power further afield of the Western hemisphere if, if our uh, neighborhood uh, is a complete and total disaster. So right. yeah. those are the reasons that I would lay out for uh, why Americans should care deeply um, about the Western hemisphere. And Megan did us to Ryan because I agree with everything you just said. I think that that's um, a great place to end it. Uh, I, I, we will also share with our, our listeners uh, a few links in addition to Ryan's recent stories, a few links to U.S. foreign assistance, uh, two great websites so they can see uh, how much of their taxpayer money is sent to our, our, our friends in the region, everything uh, to deal with things such as conflict, peace and security, uh, civil society work, uh, and every age, almost a lot of, you'd be surprised how many agencies actually are involved in international work in, in the hemisphere and uh, rebuilding the Americas and uh, making them stronger and more competitive. I think that's uh, a sweet spot that will help us counteract the, the future uh, brain, uh, and, and it's going to be a, a remarkable revolution that's coming. I think it's already started, and uh, we, we do have a leg up because it's it's the American hemisphere, it's the free liberty hemisphere, and uh, we have to work hard to make it that, and get make sure that Cuba and Venezuela, imagine if all of these stop fighting uh, amongst themselves, and they're focusing on building markets rather than uh, tearing each other down. Uh, what a remarkable way to run a run a country and run a run a region uh, it would make the region unstoppable which would be nice to do and i think we already are but it'd be nice to have these other players contribute uh, to that process okay ryan are you still there yeah i'm still here let's just close up real fast right through um let's pretend that I'm going to edit this a little closer, have them edit closer. So I'm going to thank you for uh, coming on and then just say some closing thoughts and then we'll just shut it down. Okay. Okay. So with that, I want to thank Ryan Berg again from the American Enterprise Institute for spending time with us uh, today. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed the talk and I hope you, can, you you'll come back again. We, we enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks very much for having me on, Jason, and it'd be a pleasure to come back anytime.